I'm Jacqueline Rose, and this is the Fitzcarraldo Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Charman, and I'm here with Jacqueline Rose, a writer, academic, and translator. Jacqueline's first book was an editorial collaboration with Juliet Mitchell, Feminine Sexuality, Jacques Lacan and the École Freudienne, which came out in 1985. After that, she published Sexuality in the Field of Vision in 1986, The Haunting of Sylvia Plath in 1991, The Case of Peter Pan or The Impossibility of Children's Fiction in 1993, States of Fantasy in 1996, a novel, Albertine, published in 2002, on Not Being Able to Sleep in 2004, The Question of Zion in 2005, The Last Resistance in 2007, Proust Among the Nations, From Dreyfus to the Middle East in 2011, Women in Dark Times in 2014, Mothers, an Essay on Love and Cruelty in 2018, On Violence and on Violence Against Women in 2021, and most recently, The Plague, Living Death in Our Times, which was published by Fitzcarraldo last year in 2023. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Jacqueline. Thank you. Uh, as that still very partial list makes clear, it, it's difficult to know where to start. There are so many paths through your work uh, and we've got a very generous amount of time ahead of us today. So hopefully we'll follow some of them at least. Um, but I really felt yesterday as I watched the live stream of the International Court of Justice case that's been brought by the Republic of South Africa against the State of Israel under Article 9 of the 1948 Genocide Convention, accusing Israel of genocide of the Palestinian people in the ongoing war on Gaza, that I couldn't sit here with you, given your decades of work on Palestine and Israel and on South Africa, and not start by asking you about this historic case it's quite remarkable and it does indeed feel historic it feels like this could be a major turning point although we shouldn't hold our breath because when it was found the case was found against Myanmar several years ago it made absolutely not a jot of difference to the way that process of genocide expulsion and so on was being carried out in Myanmar so the point about the international Court of Justice is that it's immensely powerful in its reach, its range, its authority, its convictions, its ethics, and more or less impotent to actually affect the change or to stop genocidal activity, even if it finds that that is what is happening in Israel today. What I thought was so striking about the first snippets we've had out of the court was the extent to which the case is based on things that the Israeli government has said itself. So talking about them as hum- talking about the Palestinians as human animals and talking about Gaza as a place that will become uninhabitable and talking about the desire to free or to cleanse, more or less close on, not quite those words, but close on, clear as the implications Gaza of all human presence and the refusal, the refusal to respond to Blinken's request for an indication of how Gaza will be ruled or governed or managed after the war is over, which is indicative of the fact that it's going to become a reoccupation and a serious expulsion. 
all of that is coming out of the mouths of the Israeli government itself, which is the most far-right Israeli government in history. So I would be very surprised if in a matter of days, certainly a week or so, we don't get a clear statement from the court um, incriminating the state of Israel for what it's doing to the Palestinians. But the point is that Israel has this kind of uh, collective public official mindset, which is that it is always the victim of uh, prejudice, discrimination, libel, and so on. And therefore, the more there are findings against it, like the finding at least 20 years ago that the wall was not a self-defensive measure but was a land grab, the more they find themselves accused at that level, the more it confirms one strand of Israeli identity, which is we are alone in the world and we must defend ourselves against what will be, so it's not just descriptive, it's, it's, it's predictive, mm. what will be an ongoing assault on our existential right to exist as a nation. So to that extent, Israel is capable of absorbing any accusation or charge as somehow a confirmation of its right to proceed down the path it's been on for the last few years, even more violently and offensively and cruelly towards the Palestinians than before. And that is saying something. What you've just said there, the, this idea of the, the curious tense almost in which Israel exists, brings us immediately up against psychoanalysis, right? I mean, this is in all of your writing about Israel, uh, particularly the question of Zion, but elsewhere too, you, you've read Israel as a state psychoanalytically and, and thought about history recurring and, and re-emerging within it. Well, that's a very interesting question because a lot of the hostility towards that book was because it was felt I had put Zionism on the couch. And that was seen as degrading. And it was seen as degrading because it uh, disqualified the reading of Zionism as a purely historically justified and therefore reasoned attempt, struggle, towards the self-determination of a persecuted, historically persecuted people, the Jews. And therefore the intimation that there could be drives or fantasies or delusions or forms of denial, which is what an average person is, by the way, the very intimation that the nation could be involved in any of that or the refusal to mourn, which is another one, was seen as a lowering of the standing of Israel's right to exist in the world. And when that book, which you kindly mentioned, The Question of Zion, was translated into Hebrew, I was asked to write a preface. And I just pointed out that Freud says in the opening of the interpretation of dreams that his aim is to restore, divorde, the dignity of the psyche which is to say that nothing in psychoanalysis says that having an unconscious or being driven by motives which you can't completely control or contain or even necessarily understand, nothing in psychoanalysis says that that lowers your dignity. On the contrary, it's what makes you human. So I felt um, that something was being manipulated in order not to hear what I was trying to say, which I may well not have said 
clearly enough, which is that not it's not just people like Weizmann and Ben Gurion saying um, saying that if if um, we were sane, I mean we are crazy, because <laughs> if we were sane people, we would certainly not have headed off to Palestine and tried to construct a state in the middle of the desert, not that it was a desert, and so on. So there is something deranged about what we're doing. And Theodor Herzl certainly said he wrote the Jewish state, the key pamphlet of early political Zionism, in a frenzy of anxiety and and kind of energy that was kind of unmanageable for him. So it self-diagnoses as something out of this world. But of course, that can be used to that is used to bring back the idea of a of a divinely inspired political movement. Having said that, of course, it was most of the early Zionists were secular, and Ben Gurion. The joke was that Ben Gurion famously said, whether he did or not, "We don't believe in God, but he gave us the land." Right. So, so it's a secular movement that nonetheless calls us on a kind of divine authentication to justify what it was doing. And of course, there was a major messianic streak in Zionism, which I think continues to this day. In fact. Um, but for me, what I was trying to do was answer a question which I find very difficult to answer to this day, which is why is this conflict so obdurate? Mm. Why does it feel so intransigent and intractable and unmovable? What is it about? And obviously you can say it's simply a fight over land and Israel is simply a colonial settler state about which I have my reservations because it certainly is but it isn't only that, it was also the movement for the national self-determination of the persecuted people. And you have to try and say both those things at once. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to do because one seems to disqualify the other. But the point is that um, Israel had an impulse towards a collective self-identification, which required a kind of loyalty and fealty to the idea of the nation state which was an investment way beyond Benedict Anderson's imagined communities. It was a kind of quasi-spiritual uh, survival mechanism in order to create the foundations of a state that would be absolutely unchallengeable. And of course, it was based on a delusion because as Hannah Arendt brilliantly wrote in the 50s and the 40s, you know, there is no such thing as a nation based on an organic unity of people. That just, it just doesn't exist. And also to create such a state in a part of the world where you are only going to be met with hostility. So to put your, your roots down um, and then expect, know that what you're doing, although it was often denied, but it was also acknowledged by many crucial leaders like Jabotinsky, to know that what you're doing is going to excite and entice the hostility of the surrounding people is to invite a kind of paranoid existence. It's to invite an existence in which you are always going to be fighting for your existential being. And I think that little, that knot mm -hmm. where your survival depends on an act of aggression, which you then have to completely deny is one of the things I was trying to get at in the book, that there's an impasse there, which is very, very hard to deal with. And it has other determinants. So, for example, as many writers have pointed out, you know, for a long time, Israel actually 
was created on the back of the Holocaust, although how important that was in the United Nations resolution that partitioned the land is not clear and is fiercely contested. But nonetheless, Israel was founded on the back of the Holocaust, and if it hadn't happened, it's arguable as to whether the United Nations would have cleared it for statehood. Um, and there's a real uh, problem about how you think of yourself if you're a nation that has been founded on such a catastrophic, genocidal tragedy like that. And one of the interesting things is that Israel, Zionism, has a kind of contempt for diaspora Jewry. Um, and it sort of sees it as having failed and having been very, very weak in fighting back against Nazism. So the wonderful Israeli historian Edith Zatal, who's written books like Death and the Nation, says that Israel has turned what was a tragedy that struck into the hearts of millions of families individually into a public commemoration of an event that then becomes absorbed into the bloodstream of the nation as a vindication of what Israel does in order to constitute itself. And what she says more simply is that Israel is suffering from what the Mishnelichs beautifully described as an inability to mourn, which say it cannot accept the weakness of the totally understandable vulnerability and weakness of its own people and so that, in fact, the survivors of the Holocaust, although some of them were sent over, came over in their droves after the fall of Nazi Germany, but there were many who didn't want to come. And Israel was desperate to bring them over, but then didn't, didn't actually treat them that well because they were too much of a... They reminded them of the awfulness of what had happened. So I think there's a real... I haven't explained it very well, but there's a real inmixing of doubt and affirmation of loss, mourning, and militarized confidence. And in fact, in the book, I call it the militarization of suffering, which is that is the ethos on which Israel was founded. And I think that's true to this day. So a kind of strength that exists because it disavows or tries desperately to disavow the memory of weakness, whilst also a strength that co-opts weakness as a reason for why it, I mean, you put it, I think, very well in your recent piece for the London Review of Books, you made me do it, you know, that the strength is not acting of its own volition, even though it is. Well, I think Goldemir's extraordinary statement we do not hate the Arabs for killing our sons. We hate them for making us kill theirs. Is an incredible sort of nutshell definition of what I'm trying to talk about. So I agree with you. Um, there's something very eloquent about that phrase, which is that she elsewhere says all the wars against, she's quoted as having said, all the wars against Israel have nothing to do with Israel. So there's a problem then about the origins of violence, which is that all, violence always comes from somebody else. It's always reactive. It's, all, it's, never, it's never 
your responsibility as a state, right? Because all you did was try and put down roots after the genocide, and then all these people attacked you. Well, of course, as the new historians like Avi Schleim and Ilan Pape uh, have described so graphically, that is a very prejudicial narrative. That's not what happened in this. I mean, yes, Israel was attacked, um, but Jordan had a much more complicated relationship to the founding of the state. And there's a controversy about Plan Dalit, which is Plan D, which is whether or not the expulsion of the Palestinians arose as a result of the aggression of the outside nations, or whether, and I think this is true, half of that 700,000 had been expelled before a single shot was fired in the war, mm -hmm. because the expulsion of the Palestinians was endemic to the definition of Israel as a Jewish state. And that, of course, has got even worse. So the basic law passed a few years ago by this appalling Netanyahu right-wing, ultra-right-wing ultra government um, says that only the Jewish people have a right to constitute themselves nationally on the land of Israel, which rules out the two-state solution completely. And it also rules out the one-state solution because it rules, it rules out the idea of Palestinians as equal citizens of a one-party state. So um, this is not getting any better. And I'm glad you referred to um, what's happening now because um, one of the things that has become such a knot in the present disaster um, is that Hamas attacked the Jews in Israel and killed over 1,200 of them. And it was a massacre, and it was hideous beyond words. There's no question about that. And then, and I want, I don't want to say but, I want to say and. I think it's really important to say but, as if what I'm going to say now disqualifies that reality. That reality is unnegotiable, right? And it was an assault on Jews, no question. At the same time, it was an assault on Jews as the embodiment of statehood. It was conducted by Hamas as part of a fight against occupation. None of this justifies what they did whatsoever. What it's meant is that Israel has been able to take that act as a justification for the intensifying of a policy it was pursuing in any case. So there's a horrible feeling that you're not allowed to grieve for the Jewish Israelis who were assaulted, raped, and murdered on October the 7th. Because if you do grieve for them, you're falling into a narrative of Israelis as eternal victims of history. Whereas, in fact, you're not. You're, you're not doing that. You're just saying they were victims on that day. And that has to be acknowledged in its fullest pain and distress but what and sorry not but and what Israel is doing now is completely unjustified by what happened on October the 7th and what I say in the piece is that civil allowed you're not allowed see how hard I found it not to say but yeah. you're not allowed to hold those two things together at the same time one of my favorite writers from Israel is Shulamit Haraven hardly anybody in the in UK or the States have ever heard of her, but she's seen as one of the 
four figures of Jewish letters and one of the most important contributors to Jewish writing. And she wrote an incredible essay in 1986 called Identity Victim, where she says, if you set up identity as the victimhood, as the basis of your identity, you are enthroning yourself and basically it becomes a license for any atrocity. This is 1986. Look at what's happening now. It's as if she predicted it. It's extraordinary. It's as if she knew what was coming next. Um, and as I said, Hannah Arendt did say, this, is, this spells disaster because you are putting yourself amongst a sea of enemies and you know that. And the consequences will be terrible. She was so prescient. It's very moving. In relation to what you've just been describing and, and, and thinking about the difficulty of holding two things to be true at the same time. It feels very instructive that it's the Republic of South Africa that's bringing this case. Um, and also that the case, as far as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer or a legal expert by any means, is is based around the fact that, yes, October the 7th happened. Acknowledging that in its fullness does not provide the prerequisite for, for, for genocide. You know, the, the, the case envelops October the 7th in its fullness and continues, you know, and not but. Um, and I was reading, it's an essay that I think you published in the LLB first, but it's in The Last Resistance. Um, about the, the legacies of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa and a conference that you went to in Stellenbosch. And you wrote, um, nothing perishes inside the body or mind, which is why the suggestion that South Africa has left apartheid behind is as psychologically as it is politically inept. Oddly, this might be grounds for the very optimism that has so visibly faltered. Reading that yesterday, having watched the stream of the, the first day of the hearing, it, <laughs> there's something very essential about South Africa here in what we're talking about. Well, the incredible thing is that South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was a kind of miracle experimentation and it was the first, it wasn't the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but I think I'm right that it was the first to hold its hearings in public. So it staged what it hoped would be a public catharsis. Um, but I wrote a long time before that piece about, and again, this is an, not a yes, but, not an either or, but a both and. Mm situation, how um, the way it ushered into speech the right to narrative about what people had suffered was truly remarkable, I think, by any standards. But its failure to be given the right, to demand the right, to enact it anyway, to redistribute property, land, and wealth, and to have reparations against the victims of apartheid has meant that the next generation 
can cry injustice, right? And what the uh, the so-called born frees who came out onto the street and pulled down the road statue, for example, they're called born frees as if they're meant to be somehow beyond all of that, as if it's meant to have sort of gone away. But as much as I admire and respect figures like Albie Sachs, who struggled all his life against apartheid and was seminal in producing what is seen as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, the only one that has the word dignity in it, I think at least three, if not four, four times, whilst totally respecting that impulse and those figureheads who were my growing up, right? I just adored them and just took inspiration from them. Um, nonetheless, I think the refusal to have justice in the technical sense of the term and to think that truth and conciliation could bypass the question of justice um, was, has been, and redistribution. So justice and material equality and redistribution has been a terrible, terrible mistake. And, you know, I would speak to people in South Africa when I was there for that event, another one the year before, like Anki Krug, the wonderful South African poet. I mean, she's just extraordinary. And she said, basically, at the time of the election of Nelson Mandela, or the time of the freeing of him from prison, the the white government, the Klerks government, basically had its troops if not literally, figuratively, outside the door. And they were going to take down um, the ANC. And they would not have stood for the emancipation of Mandela and the freeing of Mandela if any reference to socialism had not been taken out of the Constitution draft. Right. So basically, it was a sellout. Now, then you also have to say, and this is another both and, that Mandela, you know, he wasn't selling his country down the river he was doing what he had to do in order to secure the elections and to make them, as we would say, free and fair. But it has been a terrible mistake. And I think what the born free, so-called born free, are saying, well, as I say in the piece, or another piece in the book, um, to be born free for psychoanalysis is not to be born at all. I mean, you know, and South Africa surely knows this because all the forms of ancestral knowledge that I've been able to learn from are about the word of the ancestors, the word and the law of the ancestors, who you imbibe, identify with, struggle with, with the Sangomas. You know, you have you have this wonderfully densely populated mind, not just a superego in the Freudian sense, but a kind of densely populated, contesting, mobile, and and wonderfully expressive presence in your head which is the past to which you in some sense, and in some sense is central, defer. So the idea that they could be born frees who were going to forget, not be interested in apartheid, and not call up the government and the nation for failing to enact justice, and certainly not economic justice. I mean, it's salutary and heartbreaking. And I'm not quite sure what I was saying about optimism there. I think it was something about acknowledging the worst is the only way forward it has to be there has to be a form of self-reckoning that allows to the younger generation the right to grieve what the previous generation has had to push aside in order to function and survive that is a real psychic knot 
and very, very difficult to untangle. I think it's optimism in relation to hope in that particular piece, but it's not a particularly optimistic piece, which, which I think is right. I think it was called One Long Scream, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I suppose it is about, or my understanding of it anyway, of recognition and the voicing of the past, as you say, and, and transgenerational haunting, um, which actually The Last Resistance is, is full of transgenerational haunting. And you've written about it elsewhere. I mean, your very recent Stuart Hall lecture, which became a piece in the New York Review of Books, you write again about the idea of history returning inside the individual and inside the collective. Um, and it, it's, it's from Abraham and Torok, I think, originally. Hungarian emigrated psychoanalysts in Paris who had patients on their couch who'd come from the Lacanians and who'd been told that they were suffering from castration anxiety or the trials of sexual difference, for which I have a lot of time, by the way, not necessarily castration anxiety, but the trials of sexual difference I have a lot of time for. But basically what unfolded in the analytic setting was often transgenerational haunting. In the, They were often second generation Holocaust survivors. And one of my favorite psychoanalytic articles, which goes back about 30 years, if not more, is by the extraordinary Freudian scholar Ilse Grubrick Simitis. And it's called From Concretism to Metaphor, Notes on Working with the Children of Holocaust Survivors. And she describes this process whereby she would have in therapy someone who, who had an incredibly dull way of talking, sort of like this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and there was no movement in the mind. There was no free association. There were no dreams being brought to the session. It was just this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And gradually she realized that what was going on was that these were the children of Holocaust survivors who had never said a word to their children about what they went through. No judgment. It was too painful. Simple as that. So what these patients were saying over and over again was, this happened and I've not been allowed access to it. This happened, I've not been allowed access to it. So she said, you then have to go through this unbearably painful process in the analytic setting, which she called joint recognition of Holocaust reality. This is the opposite of what Freud would say, which is you go from reality to fantasy. She was saying you go back the other way. You've got to get back into the reality that they cannot bear to know that they know. That's the other point. They know it somewhere. You're through the silence of the parents. They know it. And she said, once you've done that, and this is so moving, she said, as a psychoanalyst, you can only do it once or twice with one or two patients because it's too upsetting. So you go through that process, and once you've done it for long enough or however long it takes, then the mind starts to move and the language frees itself and you enter into the world of poesis or poet, poetic self-discovery, which is where the unconscious lives in terms of endless free associations and the mobility of the mind. Also, in the unconscious, there's fixation and blockages and dogmatism and resistance and all of that. But also, if you take, you read Freud on the interpretation of dreams, the point is to let the mind move around the associations it can conjure up. 
So it's an absolutely, I think it's a seminal article. Um, and when the Psychoanalytic Institute, the International Psychoanalytic Association, went back to Germany for the first time after the war, and I was sitting reading all these papers from Hamburg, and I couldn't believe how many of them cited Ilse Gruber-Eximitis. She was obviously like so important for all of them because she was explaining how something can pass through your mind without you consciously knowing it because your previous generation couldn't speak it and then you can't speak it either but you start to live it and you start to live it as if it was happening this happened this happened this happened and it's the function of analysis to put the poetry back into the mind to give back them that movement so um i i i rely on that article and transgenerational haunting your writers comes from abraham and Torok, and i think it's no coincidence that they were refugees from nazism it's a similar story that allowed them to tell that tale. Ilsa Grubik-Simitis appears in The Plague, right? I'm not misnaming. You're, right. You're right, she does, yes. And it's her, her work that you draw on that places Freud in a context he didn't want to be placed in, in relation to mourning of, of Sophie, his daughter. Well, she is an amazing sort of textual scholar. And she's edited one book on the unpublished drafts of Freud's work. And she has a long discussion of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And Beyond the Pleasure Principle that came out in 1921, so it was a big year, you know, because I think Ulysses was published in that year and various other things, key texts of modernist thought. Um, it's one of the most controversial of all of Freud's career because it says we have an inherent drive to death. And so, for example, the Freudian left, loosely referred to the Freudian left, which is Marcuse and Reich and Norman O'Brown and so on, they all hated the concept of the death drive because they felt it made you responsible for aggression. Mm rather than seeing aggression as a result of an oppressive capitalist materialist system that was coercive both in terms of economic life and its injustice, but also coercive in terms of sexual repression. So for them, they wanted a model of, of human beings who are complex and interesting and multifarious who are being straightjacketed by social norms, mm. right? Um, and so Beyond the Pleasure Principle really upset the apple cart because it said, actually, we are subjects of aggressive drives. The death drive is very hard to pin down in Freud's thinking. It was part of his great new dualism, Eros and Thanatos, at the end of his life, which doesn't work, by the way, like all his dualisms. <laughs> he can't sustain it for more than about five minutes. But never mind, he, he tries to sustain it for a lot longer. And the death drive means it has he has... Beautiful statements in that book, like the organism wishes to die its own death. And I think that's so relevant to what we're seeing now uh, in Palestine, because the Palestinians are not dying their own deaths. They are being massacred. And I think you could really look around the world and ask, make your criteria for social justice, where are people being allowed to die their own deaths? And you'd find that the numbers are restricted COVID obviously brings us to the forefront. Maybe we can come to that later. So he wrote 
the chapter on the death drive in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, to cut a long story short, he wrote it shortly after the death of his favourite daughter, his Sunday child, Sophie. And yet, when he published it and people leapt on it and said, this is to do with the death of your daughter, he said, no, 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 no. I had almost completed it before she died. And that almost is a complete bloody giveaway, right? I'd almost or almost or hadn't quite finished it or it was mostly written by as people will be willing to certify in the future. And you think, certify? What are you doing here? You're already legally defending the idea that this text had absolutely nothing to do with the death of your daughter. Well, basically, I try to argue in the piece that the death of the daughter is at the core of that concept. And therefore, it shows Freud struggling with disaster that falls out of the skies. She was pregnant with her third pregnancy. It was the fourth wave of the Spanish flu, which was the least fatal of all the waves. It was right at the end of the war. So it's sort of like unacceptably random. Yeah. Um, and he tries to replace that with the idea that the that the organism wants to die its own death is a way, although he doesn't quite put it like this, it is a way of saying in times of injustice, actually he does in his essay on the Ice Age, in times of injustice or unlivable physical and material conditions, you are being deprived of a right, which is your right to die in your own way. So there's a beautiful, actually, interweaving between his own personal pain at what can happen randomly or seemingly randomly to those we love and the idea that there could be another way of doing this which would be more inner bound and give you the dignity of the end of your own life. So I just found uncovering this. I'd read the Ice Age pamphlet before and thought it was complete the incomprehensible and crazy, you know, and he didn't want it published. So Gurbig Simitas, in fact, was behaving like Broad and Kafka. You know, she was publishing, she was publishing something that Freud would rather forget about. Well, I'm so glad she did it because um, it's so moving. At the same time, if you allow for the death drive as part of your inner way of being in the world, you have to accept there's another meaning, which is aggression and violence and what the death drive also does which is indeed why the freudian left couldn't stand it is say that we are the origins of our own violence that is not to diminish injustice in the world or that one person is the oppressor and the other one is the oppressed as in palestine at the moment it's unequivocal but nonetheless we all have a component of violence and how we negotiate that whether we project it onto the outside world or whether we make an uneasy truce with it by acknowledging it somewhere in our hearts and souls and dreams is very, very important politically, I would say. Let me just give you a quote, which I think will interest you. Finland was one of the countries which I discussed in the, the play, which is subtitled Living Death in Our Times, which had uh, a wonderful woman prime minister who along with Mia Motley and others was one of the women who I felt dealt with the pandemic. Mia Motley in Barbados who's one of the heroines of that book um, who dealt with the pandemic so much better than let's say Bolsonaro and Trump and Johnson just for shorthand purposes um, and that government has been defeated now 
and a very right-wing government has taken over in Finland. And the Minister of Finance, though why she was saying this, I have no idea, was quoted recently in The Guardian, I think it was, as saying, talking, justifying her right-wing policies on migration and on internal terrorism and all those buzzwords that come out when you don't want to face up to injustice. She was quoted as saying, I am full of pure hate and rage, or rage and pure hate, I can't remember. What have you done to my psyche, Islam? Okay. I'm full of rage and hate. What have you done to my psyche, Islam? Now, what I find, two things which I find absolutely incredible, at least two things about that sentence. First of all, Islam is at the end of the sentence, a bit like inshallah where Allah goes to the end of the sentence. Yeah. So it's as if she's sort of evoking Islam as her God. Yeah. So there's an identification with the enemy. That's the first thing in the structure of the sentence. Then the use of the word psyche or something close. You think, wow. And then thirdly, I am full of hate and rage and you have done it to me. Right? So it's a complete refusal to have any internal reckoning with the complexity of your own affective world. And if you can't do that, if you can't project onto the other everything you hate about yourself, then you have to live with it without, and you're, I do believe this is a bit of a leap, that if you negotiate your own internal violence, you're less likely to enact it. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't have to in the same way. You, you won't be, it won't be so necessary. This idea of being the eternal victim, right? Uh, other people, other things, including an entire religion, are what are bringing out negative feelings and violent thoughts inside you. It It is related to innocence, right? This fantasy of innocence that, again, you've written about so much. It, it's perhaps a sideways alley that I might take us down now, but the case of Peter Pan... Uh, your your PhD, right? It's my PhD. <laughs> um, it's still brilliant. It still really thrills, I think. But the central thesis, correct me if I'm summarizing it wrongly, is that children's literature as a whole is is not for children. It's it's the result of the adult fantasy, the desperate desire for, for innocence to be what childhood is or, or for there to have ever been a kind of blank slate a, a, a state of um not having guilt or shame or or these things and you know psychoanalysis obviously tells us that that's not true well i think that's absolutely right and of course the only way for a child not to grow up is for it to die at a very early age. So there's a colossal act of violence in the celebration of Peter Pan's durability and innocence and so on. There's something very, very unpleasant. This all started when I was a graduate student in Paris. And um, I went to meet one of the specialists in children's literature in France at the time, Marc Soriano. And we all went around the room saying what we were working on. He said, your thesis is interdisciplinary. He said, you must go and look at the history of folklore as the backdrop to Peter Pan, and you must start reading Freud. And he said, basically, there's only one way to read Freud. 
and that is to um, get Ernest Jones's three-volume biography and start reading the biography. And every time you get to a work by Freud, you put the biography down and you read it. And he said, and you basically work your way through, entirely through Freud's life and it'll take you two years if you've got anything else to do, but you can probably just about pull it off in six months if you've got nothing else to do. So I thought this guy is completely off his trolley. But anyway, <laughs> I thought I'll try, I'll give it a go. And I got to volume 11. I got nearly halfway through. In six months? I think more like a year. But it was absolutely transformative. I just thought this is so incredible. And I don't know how Peter Pan came into the frame, but I did immediately feel I'm up against something here that is so weird. And it's actually almost about child trafficking mm. because the little white bird out of which Peter Pan was taken is a story about a man trying to ch steal a child through telling stories. And it's, it's very sensual and very manipulative and it's not quite grooming it's not quite trafficking but there's some and peter pan is then lifted out of that pre-story story and just told us the tale of peter pan and i felt there's something wrong with this we need to be very very suspicious and of course the the analyst who is was most seminal in talking about the aggression of the human mind from the earliest earliest ages is Melanie Klein. And if you compare Melanie Klein to Freud, and it's like she makes him read like a Sunday school tea party. <laughs> and her account of the inner phantasmagoria of the infant reads a little bit like a snuff movie um, because it's a dismemberment. I mean, it's an absolute rage against the and curiosity and passion and intrusiveness on the part of the baby in relationship to the body of the mother and when students say this is horrible Jacqueline why are you making us <laughs> read this monstrous stuff and Melanie Klein's work has been pulped several times in America whereas the biography the famous biography of Melanie Klein sold thousands and thousands and thousands but that's classic the biographies always sell more than the work but they say to me this is absolutely horrible why why are we reading this and I say listen what we have to, why would not, if you've just come out of the body of, let's say, your mother, you've come out of the body of the mother and you're breastfeeding, you're being milk fed or you're being held or whatever, why would you accept the boundary? In fact, you don't accept the boundary between yourself and the mother. The mother feels at the beginning as the extension of your own will because the mother is there all the time, comes immediately in response to your call or feels as if she does. Now, obviously, this is an idealization of motherhood in itself, but the mother feels like an extension of your body. And then you have to do what Winnicott says, which is disillusion the child by separating out so the child has to relinquish part of its own omnipotence. Why wouldn't you be curious about the inside of the body you've just come out of? Why wouldn't you want to go in and have a look around? Why would you not want to pick up, pick up bits and pieces of limbs and look at them and sort of, and why wouldn't you want to attack them as well as to love them? I mean, why, you know, what's wrong with this account of, what what's wrong with this account of the human, the phantasmagoria of the infant? Surely the other version, which is the perfect in attunement of the mother and body's baby as an eternal path through the rest of their lives, which is, you know, 
a surefire way to dictatorship, to say the least. I mean, basically, you have a child. You know, you, you respond to everything at the beginning if you're able to, if you're well enough, if it's gone positively enough for you. And then there comes a moment where you suddenly realize, if I go on behaving like this, this child's going to be a monster. <laughs> so what am I going to do now, right? I mean, it's not straightforward. It's really not easy. Anyway, so Melanie Klein believes that the child was infinitely and violently curious about the inside of the body. The question She called it the paranoid schizoid phase because it also involved, as in the Finnish Minister of Finance, projection, mm. projective identification where you feel a bit angry or frustrated or neglected or whatever you don't like that feeling inside you so you project it you try and get rid of it so you throw it onto the onto the persona of whoever is whatever is closest to you but as anybody will know if your child is crying and says there's a monster under the bed you do not open the window and say well throw it out of the window because that means one the monster was really there and two it could come back through the window right so you have to be very very careful how you deal with this so basically she she created this concept of projective identification where you get rid of something and then you feel assaulted by it in fact this is the point where i should read yeah. this extraordinary quote from un it feels completely unlikely but this is from simon Veil the French philosopher, who's one of the heroines of the plague. And this is what she says. She's talking about people's inability to countenance what's negative in their own hearts. Okay. Insofar as we register the evil and ugliness within us, it horrifies us and we reject it like vomit. Through the operation of transference, a psychoanalytic concept, by the way, although she doesn't mean it like that, <laughs> we transport this discomfort into the things that surround us. But these same things, which turn ugly and solid in turn, send back to us, increased, the ill we have lodged inside them. In this process of exchange, the evil within us expands and we start to feel that the very milieu in which we are living is a prison. Now, she wasn't a psychoanalytic thinker at all, but that, is, that could have been written by Melanie Klein. And it's really just about how you distribute your effective world. But another reference here, which I think is important, somebody I refer to a lot throughout my writing is Christopher Bolas, the extraordinary, now US-based, but he was based in London for a very, very long time. Christopher Bolas, his article, Violent Innocence, which I don't know if you've read it. It's fabulous, yeah, it's right? Brilliant. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. And what he just does is demonstrate the way in which we get rid of the violence in us in order to create a dichotomy between good and evil. And then the point about the expulsion of that is that you then have to go after the evil because it comes back at you, so you then have a license to destroy it. And I'm not, I don't want to wild psychoanalyze all the soldiers of the universe. Um, go on. Okay, well, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to. I do remember after the first Iraq war when there was the turkey shoot, when the war was over and it was won, but America basically strafed all the departing troops, completely had no military rationale whatsoever. And when a couple of the pilots were interviewed, I think it was by Channel 4 News, and somebody said, how do you feel about killing all these people? They said, well, we just don't think about it. We just don't think that's what we're doing. He said, but on the other hand, the point is, 
that's what it means to be part of God's country. I, he gave a kind of, he sanctified his own violence. He said, that's the origins of what I'm doing is the redemption of the world. And so violent innocence leads to redemptive violence very, very rapidly. And that's something I suppose that I've been tracking all my life. I think it's been partly because uh, as a feminist, I've wanted, and this was central to the book on Sylvia Plath, mm -hmm. as a feminist, I've wanted us to be able to countenance the complexity of what it means to be a woman without having to reduce ourselves simply to the victims of patriarchy. And this is a long discussion we can have or not have according to what you feel like <laughs> about my dispute with radical feminism, right? But I just feel that we mustn't, you know, as I say in one of the pieces, um, Catherine McKinnick talks about the broken bones of women from other centuries and other cultures. And she talks about, I, and she says, I want to know how they died. I want to know how these women's lives were ended. And I want to know how they lived. Yeah. And I just don't feel it's of interest to feminism to present ourselves as the eternal victims of history. This is another both and, because you have to acknowledge the violence. So for example, I wanted Weinstein to go down for as long as possible right? Set the law must intervene. On the other hand, sexuality is lawless. Mm. So the idea you can subordinate it to a simple legal repost uh, or simple criminalization of patriarchy, you have to operate on more than one front at once. You fight for legal redress. You fight for imprisonment of somebody like Weinstein, but you mustn't let that be a reason for robbing you of your understanding of your own complexity and your own responsibility for the life that you're leading. Now, how you square that circle, I don't know. It's obsessed me for many decades. Well, we hamstring ourselves, right? If we insist on we, I'm saying we because I'm a woman, I'm speaking about women, but really I'm just speaking about myself, I suppose. That if we think about women as a category in this particular instance, if you insist that you can only be the victim, you can only be innocent, not only do you prevent yourself from having a sexuality, right? Having fantasy, having the right to change your mind, having the right to all of these other things. But you also create an impossible kind of victimhood because you're never going to be free of it. You deprive yourself of agency. That's the point. I mean, that's why I wrote the piece Feminism and the Abomination of Violence in my book on on violence against women because feminism rightly repudiates violence, but it then risks abominating it, i.e. banishing it to the outer reaches of what is comprehensible or what any woman could possibly have any connection to. And I like what you just said, Helen, because, you know, if you think of sexuality as a realm of confusion, conflation, uh, bisexuality, polymorphous perversity in Freud's account, or his more simple account, there's no sexual act that doesn't involve at least four people because we are complex. <laughs> Sexually, if you bring all that back into the fray, then the awfulness of sexual abuse or and of rape is that it's always corrective rape. It's always saying, you are a woman. I am making you a woman. Um, and it's a kind of vicious suppression of any complexity of what a woman can actually be internally because it just makes 
it makes the abuse the whole story. That's the power of abuse. Christopher Burles has a wonderful article on this, where on incest, where he says, when a patient comes into his room and says, I've been abused, he doesn't disbelieve her. That's an absolute travesty of what psychoanalysis says. He doesn't disbelieve her, but his heart sinks. And his heart sinks because it's going to be non-stop what is talked about in the therapy. It's going to be so hard to move away from it mm. in the therapeutic setting. And then he said, and then I realized that's because that is exactly what abuse does. It, you are a child of reverie. You're a child of fantasy. You're a child of inner psychic mobility. And then this thing lands in your face and in your body and fills all the room every corner blocks out the light fills the room so that is all you can see so it's abuse twice over it's the actual act of abuse but it's also the psychic coerciveness of what that moment is capable of doing to you and i i thought i thought that was just such an amazing rendering of why abuse becomes the only thing that then can be talked about mm. that is actually also an effect of the abuse and we must fight against that as well as sending Weinstein to jail. On the idea of the complexity of sexuality and, and, and also the, the limitations of cleaving to one reading of female experience in kind of scare quotes and sexual identity. When I was going back to The Haunting of Sylvia Plath and reading other pieces that, that you'd written about the dispute with the Plath estates and, you know, everything else that kind of swells around that book. It struck me that what I think is most interesting about that dispute is that you have a poet, Ted Hughes, and obviously Olwyn too, but Ted Hughes is a poet, right? Has been called a lyric poet, you know, writes short poems that use the first person voice taking so literally a reading of a lyric poem, right? That the point that you make, the points that you make in reading The Rabbit Catcher, in reading Plath, are that she's not a one-note confessional poet. You can't reduce it to experience. You know, she, she's using the lyric first person. She's, she's mixing all of these parts of herself and social life together that's her art and in the dispute it, it kind of disavowed the possibility of poetry as much as the possibility of psychoanalysis I think that's very well put Helen so I really agree with you what was extraordinary about that dispute and it got very ugly was that Hughes had produced the copy of Ariel that became most famous and he took out all the poems that could be seen as referencing him, like The Rabbit Catcher or The Courage of Shutting Up. He added poems that she had not put in the collection, um, which were about the death of her of her, about her suicide and her children, which therefore made the progression of the collection seem like an inevitable move towards the end of her life. 
She had wanted it to begin with morning song, the first word of which is love, and to end with the B sequence, which end with they taste the spring. So she had wanted the book to be framed by the uplifting of what she was describing and how she was doing it, what she was doing, her ability to, to hold her writing within that space was absolutely crucial to her. And of course, by removing them, he implicated himself, which is to say that if he removes the poems, it looks as if he is conceding that they are about himself. And just an aside here, in one of his letters to me, he said, you think you have written a book about Sylvia Plath. In fact, you have written a book about me. Um, so what I was struck by with The Rabbit Catcher was that obviously there is a prey and a trap. Mm. So the patriarchal or the anti-patriarchal feminist reading of that poem stands, except that the way the trap is described in terms of its hair and its density and its softness makes it sound like a description of the female genitals. So it seemed to me that the poem was at the very least sexually ambiguous, which I thought he would appreciate because if the poem is sexually ambiguous and the trap cannot be gendered, then he is sort of off the hook <laughs> or certainly he's not the sole target of the poem, right? Instead of which, he wrote back to me and said, was I aware that there are countries in the world where to speculate on a mother's sexual identity would be grounds for homicide? So I wrote back and said, as the author of Crow and other texts which are so powerful in their condemnation of a patriarchal, normative, so-called civilized culture which cannot handle the confusion of the natural world on which it sits and which is in fact today we would say was destroying, that this ambiguization of Plath sexually might be something that you would welcome. <laughs> well, I'll never forget Ruthie Petrie, wonderful editor of Raga, saying to me, Jacqueline, if you get any free tickets through the post to an exotic destination, <laughs> don't go, okay? <laughs> but she also said to me when I was on my fourth round of exchange with Ted Hughes, she said, Jacqueline, how far do you want this to go? Do you want to move in with him? <laughs> and I said, I don't think so, no. I don't think that's even on offer, Ruthie. But I take your point. She said, I think it's time we let this go, don't you? I think it's time we just stopped. So we stopped, but he did, Owen Hughes did write on the first version that went through this book will never appear. And it was the most incredible thing because I'll just tell you this story, if that's okay. Um, I knew I was going to have trouble from the estate. So we went to see Brian Raymond, one of the most progressive barristers who had fought to get Clive Ponting off after he revealed the story of the sinking of the Belgrano during the Falklands War. He was a very, he also fought on the ch child abuse case that B. Campbell had exposed in her writing. He was a very progressive, very interesting man. He said, it's very simple, Jacqueline. 
You write and ask for permission for the complete citation of the three poems you discuss in greatest depth. You just write and ask permission. She will ask for, Owen will ask for a fee. You pay the fee. You, you wait for it to go through her account. And then we send her the whole manuscript. And I said, I beg your pardon. He said, then we send her the whole, I said, but she'll hate it. He said, yes, it'll be too late because she will have cashed the check. And if she objects, it'll then clearly be a freedom of speech and censorship issue rather than a legal issue about copyright. So that's what we're going to do. It happened exactly <laughs> as he said it would. It was incredible. She sent me back a hundred pages of notes on the manuscript, objecting to my interpretation. Fine. I just included her interpretation in a footnote. I said, Owen Hughes says that that's, this is what this means and not this. And of course, it made her look, it, it, it was clear that the meanings she was trying to struggle for were ones that were incriminating Sylvia Plath. So she served me, even though that wasn't her intention. She wanted me to correct my readings, so I didn't do that, but I added hers in the footnotes. So that was fine. This went on for a long time, and then Hughes moved in. And I think this was their technique, which is Owen Hughes softens up the writer and exhausts her and drives her completely crazy and abuses Ursula Owen at Virago. She come into abusive messages on her phone. And then just when you think you've reached the end of the line, Hughes moves in as the powerful, charismatic figure who has things to say to you. It was really horrible. I cannot mm. describe how horrible it was. But in the end, and in the end, we, they were threatening us with a legal suit, as they do everybody. And we thought we couldn't go through with it. It would bankrupt Virago. But there was a Rothschild on the Virago editorial board. And Ursula Owen presented the case and sat down. He said, let the presses roll. It was so moving. He said, we're going ahead with this book. And of course, they never sued. They never did anything. Um, but, and also I will say this, when uh, my extraordinary sister Gillian Rose died, um, very young, shortly after all this happened, and I got involved with the question of her legacy and her literary legacy, I must admit my sympathy for Hughes slightly increased, which is to say that I could understand what it feels like to have been intimately and passionately involved with someone who dies and then people produce their readings of that mm. in a way that estranges you or feels foreign or mistaken or misguided. And of course you can't. I, unlike Hughes, the two Hugheses, I don't think you can do anything about that because if the poetry is to have a life, then it must be allowed to move through the pathway of everybody else's interpretation. So I felt you certainly couldn't do, and, and if it doesn't, you've killed it. So it's not just that he wasn't behaving as a poet, it's that he was killing her poetry by insisting it was literal and biographical and so on and so forth. Um, so I felt you couldn't do anything, but I could understand the feelings better. You know, I thought, yeah, okay, I get this, but it still doesn't change what you did and my feeling that I had to go ahead with what I was doing. Um, so that's the backstory. What you say there is so interesting to me that this idea that so we've got ownership, right? That this idea of ownership versus, I guess, custodianship or guardianship, mm -hmm. and and it we've got sisters in both accounts here, right? And and when you're talking about 
your role in relation to your sister Gillian's work, it's reckoning with how much you you can square your personal relationship with your role as custodian or, or guardian. Whereas Hughes and Plath were married, right? And when they got married, like I don't know exactly when it was, I'm sure maybe you do, but you legally owned your wife as a as a husband, right? That's already a completely different form of relation. Um, Alwyn Hughes kind of fascinates me as the the sister of the owner, if we're if we're thinking about it in those terms. That's quite interesting. But Hughes and and, and Plath, it is a, a story about ownership, right? That seems to me very to do with marriage or, or what marriage means or has meant historically for feminism as well as for feminist writers or the writing of women. Diane Middlebrook was, was a wonderful critic who wrote a biography of Anne Sexton. And we met up whilst my book on Plath was finishing and her book on Anne Sexton was finishing. And we realized we'd had diametrically opposed problems in writing about Sexton and Plath. Because I was censored or attempted to censor and told what I could not say. Whereas she had been twice put in ethical positions of extraordinary complexity. So Martin Orme, Sexton's therapist, had got Sexton to record their sessions because she was systematically erasing them from her mind completely after each session. They had to start from the beginning again. And instead of seeing that as resistance, as something to be worked through as part of the analysis, he got her to record the sessions. And then after she died, he released the tapes. So that had the most terrible effect on the whole world of patients in America because it was seen as such, a, such an extraordinary betrayal. So that was one thing that happened to her. The other thing that happened to her was that Anne Sexton's daughter gave her what we call today too much information. That's say she told her about her abuse by her mother. Mm. Um, so we realized we were in the opposite position. I'd been not given enough and she'd been given too much. And it then made you realize that there is no satisfactory position through which you can negotiate this. Mm. Um, and how, how difficult it is to find your way through this particular quagmire for both of us. And the too much and the not enough left us both feeling we'd done something of huge value for the writers who we fell for. I mean, you become so intimate if you write a book like, like that about a single author. Um, so we felt we'd done them justice but also that there was no way there wouldn't be a betrayal somewhere in all of that, and very, very hard to surmise. But what is also crucial to this, and this does lead back to the question of feminism, is that Plath had this remarkable capacity to write poems that would go into the pain of her relationship with her mother and the anxiety and distress about that. And then would write poems where she was clearly reproaching the husband, right? Um, and Daddy is a very, very interesting 
um, example of this because it's her most famous poem. But when she says the telephone's off at the hook, um, she's also talking about Hughes or a figure in the position of Hughes, not necessarily Hughes himself. And I remember being on a discussion program with a quite distinguished uh, biographer whose name escapes me for the moment, who said the telephone's off at the hook is obviously a reference to her discovering the truth about Asia Weevil. Or I think there's a poem called Parliament Hill. I'm not sure if I got that name right, where she's just had an abortion. And it's not, she doesn't state it, but you kind of deduce it that something is missing that cannot be named. And when people say this is a poem about an abortion, which I just did, of course, myself as well, <laughs> if you say that, you have taken away her poetic right to transform, ambiguate, reticently hold back on what it is exactly that she's talking about. And of course, that's a much better description of abortion than anything else could be. So I felt that a lot of this was about suffocating the creativity of Sylvia Plath as a writer. Mm. It was taking away the right to move inside her own head around positions that in the world outside and politically for feminism, we are constantly being presented as alternatives. I, either it's patriarchy or it's pathology. Right? Those are the two options. When I got to Plath at the beginning, those were the two ways she was spoken about. She was either crazy and sick, and the poetry was evidence of that, or this was a feminist assertion against patriarchal evil. And I thought, I can't stand either of these. They do an injustice. What you have to do is feed them into each other and then see what happens, because that's what she's doing in her poetry. And that's why she's gone on being so important to me, because she could hold her breath and posit herself in a position which is almost psychically untenable but that maybe poetry allows you to do and I am reminded here of something I always say to my students on the course I teach which goes from Freud as a social thinker into certain literary texts around war and I say um, Lacan the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan always said only literary students can understand psychoanalysis because only literary people and literary students are unfazed by the idea that a word can mean more than one thing at once. And in fact, those meanings might be contradictory. It's not a problem if you're working with literature, whereas if you're a historian or a positivist science, there is no room for linguistic maneuver. And that's where we find a certain type of freedom. Yeah, I, I also loved, I mean, biased as a... <laughs> literary studies person myself it feels affirming to have that reminder but coming to Lacan and feminism kind of sticking with feminism but but uh, going back I suppose even before the Plath book you and Juliet Mitchell well you translated Lacan Jacqueline and I think your work as a translator is often forgotten or 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 it's not um, as, I suppose, public-facing now as, as your other work. Um, but at the time, in 1985, when you and Juliet Mitchell were translating and, and, and publishing Lacan in English, Anglophone feminism and psychoanalysis were <laughs> bitterly... Uh, I don't know if I would say bitterly opposed. I mean... I think you could say that. 
Yeah. I think you could say that fairly firmly. In fact, that's the reason why Juliet Mitchell wrote Psychonauts and Feminism, which came out in 1974. I was just back from Paris. I'd been going through the standard edition of the Complete Works for Sigmund Freud, <laughs> loyally and studiously and obediently, and realizing it had changed my life to read it. I read The Case of Dora and the account of what she went through psychically and the full steps she made and the rage against Freud, which was justified, and Freud's failure to read her own sexual ambiguity. Mm. She was in love with Frau K, not her K. He had a crush on her K. He completely fucked up that case. It was a time when to be a feminist interest in psychoanalysis, you had to write about Dora, or you didn't qualify. <laughs> Basically, we're talking in the 70s. But anyway, Juliet Mitchell's book came out. I came back from Paris, right, where I'd started to get involved in all of that, and I just realized that in the UK, but not just the UK, in America, psychoanalysis was seen as anathema for feminism. And I remember standing outside the ICA once and there was a, a poster about this performance group called Beryl the Peril. And their little slogan was, Freud reinforced the female role and drove a lot of women up the pole. And I thought <laughs> that just about sums it up. So Julia Mitchell wrote Psychoanalysis and Feminism because she didn't want a biologistic account of sexual difference. Mm -hmm. Who does? Unless they're very reactionary. Uh, and, but she didn't want a sociological one, which was you are a tabula rasa and then society comes and imposes its sexual differentiation upon you. She didn't want either. She wanted to live in the world of the drive, which as Freud says is on the boundary between the psyche and the soma. So she wanted to put feminism somewhere where it could draw on psychoanalysis as a way of understanding the necessity and difficulty of what she called the making of a lady. How does the little girl come to be a woman, to which I would add, or does she, right? Mm. So we we very, very close. I have huge affection and respect for Juliet. But our paths have, have, have diverged since the Lacan book. So we were very keen to do the Lacan book because we felt that his concepts of jouissance, his concept of the meaning of the phallus, Everything he was exploring was central to understanding how sexual difference becomes so such a straitjacket and such a such a, a barrier to a kind of a barrier to a much more copious, uh, playful, perverse, and complex sexual being that then has to be straitjacketed into place into the antagonism of masculine and feminine or male and female. And she knew, I mean, she was on the board of New Left Review, and I think she was the only woman. And she'd written Women, the Longest Revolution. And then she wrote Psychons and Feminism. It was the only time in the history of the New Left Review that they got a member of the board to write a critical review of a book by a member of the board, right? So it just, <laughs> that says something about feminism all of itself. Um, and we wanted to do Lacan because we felt there was something very exhilarating about his emphasis on what he would call the destitution of the subject, the fundamental non-fit between human creatures and symbolic law, and yet the obligation to conform to it. So if you take, for example, his expression, le nom du père, which is the name of the father, which also sounds le nom du père, the no of the father, i.e. the father as a kind of indictment and straitjacketing, as I've already said, of what you're allowed to be, that he was producing, he wasn't condoning or reproducing. He was producing an analytic critique 
of the force of patriarchy. And he would say, nobody, the other of the other, by which he means the person who reinforces and dictates symbolic law, nobody can occupy that position and anybody who does so does so as an imposter. So his basic argument was that kind of the, the law of the master or the discourse of the university or any form of knowingness that claims the authority of its own social position is fraudulent because language doesn't work like that and our identities don't work like that. Uh, so it was incredibly exciting. And Juliet wrote this wonderful introduction of how this was a continuation of the debates in the 30s where you know, writers like Karen Horney just said, Freud has got it completely wrong. This is all about the oppression of women. Mm. Shulamith Firestone said the same thing. Jermaine Greer said the same thing. So, uh, you know, Shulamith Firestone and Betty Friedan were central to Juliet's book. And this was America. And of course, there were historical reasons for this. Because Ernest Jones, Freud's biographer, and a distinguished, although slightly problematic figure, because abuse has been uncovered, in psychoanalytic history, he won the argument over lay analysis in the UK, which say you do not have to be a doctor to be an analyst, but he lost it in America, mm. which meant that to be an analyst in America, you had to do a full MD medical degree, and then you had to do your psychoanalytic training. So guess what? Hardly any women analysts in America, right? Whereas in England, it was Hugelmuth, and then it was Melanie Klein and Anna Freud, I say it became a kind of a matriarchy. I mean, it completely, after Freud, it was the women who took over. They didn't agree with each other. That's another story. <laughs> but they took over. So um, I think Juliet wanted to do the Lacan book because, or Juliet wrote Psychonauts and Feminism, I should say, because she wanted to correct the hatred of Freud in feminist discussions and the sanctioning of R.D. Lang and Wilhelm Reich. Because Wilhelm Reich was a homophobe, so was R.D. Lang. And Wilhelm Reich had this biologistic notion of the orgone and, and of sexual de-repression and so on. And, and, and R.D. Lang had the witch hunt for the schizogenic mother. Right? There's always a mother in the background who'd driven the child crazy. And she said, we have to ask why Freud has been repudiated in the name of these guys. Who are surely worse. So that's why she did the book. And then that's why we did. I mean, it was wonderful to work with her. It felt like she was training to be an analyst at the time. And that was my ambition at that point. And it was just extraordinary to work with the Lacan, to tease out what we thought was progressive in it. And then, of course, lots of people disagreed. And at one feminist conference, somebody called out the name of the book in in the debate, in the in the public debate. And Somebody in the feminine sexuality. It's called feminine sexuality. And somebody said, yeah, and it's really boring. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, if you pick up the book, Feminine Sexuality, with a wonderful picture of St. Teresa on the front of the cover, you will be expecting not Lacanian graphs and, and debates about the phallus. So I felt so guilty and so sorry on her behalf. But there you go. So that's the backstory to that. You missold your <laughs> feminine sexuality. I suppose the 80s, we're, we're, we're in the 80s uh, at present, thinking about feminine sexuality. For me, one of the first 
essays of yours that I read that made me realize that feminism and psychoanalysis were mutually illuminating and codependent uh, ways of thinking, schools of thought, whatever you want to call them, was about Margaret Thatcher and Ruth Ellis, the, the last woman to be hanged in Britain. Um, and in that essay, what you do with Thatcher is is reveal all of the dangerous contradictions of, you know, the first female prime minister, this feminized embodiment of patriarchal power, right? The British state has historically been, still is, I should say, a, a patriarchal one. And within that, obviously, there's so many knots of feminism or to do with feminism that still remain quite tightly tied, right? You, you, it's difficult to talk about Thatcher or write about Thatcher without coming up against the, in my opinion, frustratingly naive argument that just by being a woman, she was feminist, right? Or there's something feminist about Thatcher. And, and in that essay, you use psychoanalysis to, to basically make that point. And she was still in power when you wrote it. I think it's her third term is, mm -hmm. is what you're writing about. Mm -hmm. I said I will write on Thatcher and the death penalty if she's re-elected. That was my way of dealing with it because we were all devastated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you've summed it up beautifully, so I'm not sure how much I've got to add, but I'll, and I haven't read it for a very, very long time, right? And we're 80s, where are we now? Are we talking 40 years ago? Yeah. I think we are. That's all right. Um, I was horrified at the idea that because she's a woman, she would be progressive because the power of identification with authority, if you're prime minister, if that's what you want more than anything else in the world, uh, not to speak of the fact that this is a woman who never spoke about her mother, but spoke about her father and the grocer's store and all of that a lot. So she created a patriarchal lineage for herself. And then just to put it more simply, one, if you're uh, slashing welfare and destroying the right to strike, and destroying the industrial base. You're making the positions of women. The women are the ones who have to pick up the mess and clean the floors and deal with unemployed men and so on. And it's it just leads to this hideous aggravation of women's caring role in accentuated caricatured form. So if you're conducting those kinds of policies, then you are not on the side of women. But you don't need me to say that because she would say so more or less herself that she was not a feminist. Mm -hmm. She was, and her policies aggravated sexual inequality like nothing else. So it's a really important moment for seeing the relationship between conservatism and the exploitation and increasing degradation of women across the public sector. So I think that's very important. It was kind of heartbreaking, naive as that sounds, to see a woman come to power and to allow yourself, if only for a second, to think this must make a difference uh, because it made everything worse and we're still living the legacy. Um, so it was very, very important to see such a an emblematization of a woman not only embodying patriarchal power, but worse in a way, although I don't want to compete over these two things, identifying with the violence of state, right? That is to say identifying herself 
with the monopoly of violence by the state. And there was an amazing moment when this was all blaring out on the television uh, in the 80s when she was talking about her defense of the death penalty, when there was a clip where she said some crime or other is, she meant to say repugnant for us all, and she said it is republican for us all. And I think she was talking about the death penalty. And I thought, you've just given the game away. Yeah. You actually think the death penalty is the logical accumulation of state authority. And if you cannot inflict it, then your power has been rendered less. So it's a caricature, Helen. It's a caricature to think that our first woman prime minister should be so cleverly identifying with state authority in its parodic masculinist patriarchal form. And I thought we had a lot to learn from that. And it's so important. She's hardly a victim, right? Um, so a lot of the feminist paradigms and models need to be shifted around to take on board what she was doing. But here I just want to quote Juliet again, because Juliet once said she only ever writes when there's a problem or something she doesn't understand or a question she can't answer. And that was really my attempt to say, you know, what is the pull of this woman? Why is she being re-elected? What is so scary about her? And of course, the, the Falklands War was another case in point. It brings us back to Plath because Brian Raymond fought the case for Clive Ponting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also slightly, I don't want to say obsessed, but I will because I can't think of another word with her or I have been for a long time because exactly as you say, she, you cannot apply the truisms of feminism or, or truisms that, that are often mistaken for feminism if you think about her for more than five seconds. Mm. But well, you can just call her an aberration. You can call her a traitor. You know, you can get round it. Mm. That kind of feminism, the kind of feminism that sees the patriarchal status as the embodiment of male power, you just say she was male identified. She was the scepter of the realm. She was the sword of the nation and all of that. And this is a perversion and an aberration of feminism, which, of course, it's, it is in a way. It's just I would draw different conclusions from that. I would say what that embodiment of the extremities of a certain kind of patriarchal authority in the shape of a woman shows is that our categories of sexual differentiation are less certain than we like to think they are. Whereas radical feminism would say she's just not a feminist, end of story, she doesn't count. I think that's what they would say. I might be wrong. <laughs> and this idea that she performed her femininity so extremely, right? The handbag and the, the kind of aesthetic stuff that always gets mentioned, but, you know, using the language of the housewife all the time you know, the purse strings of the nation, all of this. It, this idea of the domestic and the domestic being where women live or should live, that's their proper place, apart from Margaret Thatcher, of course, whose proper place is, you know, at the helm of the nation. But she domesticates it, is what you're saying. But I'm also thinking back as you're talking to that moment before she was elected leader of the party, where she was known as Margaret Thatcher Miltsnatcher because she had cut funding for school provision of milk and or free milk from, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was to do with schools? It was milk for 
primary age children because the, the, the previous Labour government had abolished milk for secondary, but she she, she right. did it for primary. Okay, which just goes to show the barrier between the Labour and Conservative <laughs> Party is not as great as we would like it to be, as we're probably about to see again for the billionth time. But uh, yeah, so for her to allow herself to be parodied as a milk snatcher meant she was flying in the face of a certain version of femininity. Um, so she played all the cards. That's what you're describing so well, is that she pulled all the stops and played every single note on from, you know, symbolic, patriarchal, almost divinely inspired and sanctioned violent authority to purse strings, to her femininity. She she went the whole gamut. You're making her even more interesting than I think she really was. But <laughs> yes, point taken, absolutely. Speaking about the domestic and about feminism, I am trying to limit myself on talking about Margaret Thatcher because I don't want to talk about her anymore because I feel like I talk about her yeah, all the time. We've done enough. We've done enough. Yeah. We need to try and bury that <laughs> ghost as much as we can. Um, and coming back to the plague, and also your last but one book on violence and on violence against women, the domestic as a feminized space is essential to your thinking about violence as well as about gender and sexuality. Well, I found one of the most remarkable things about the pandemic was the fact that the stay-at-home policy took absolutely no account of domestic violence. As one of the posters that went up all across North London says very clearly, abusers always work from home, right? And to insist that nobody in the house could go out of it was to do several things. It was to put abused women utterly under the control of their abusers with no escape, literally no escape. And it was also to put men into a position which was often insufferable for them because it turned them into women. So men are being feminized and women are being trapped. And in the book I wrote, between the ones you described on motherhood, mm -hmm. I suggest that there's a real problem insofar as mothers are expected to make the world safe and happy for their child and, and just. And within five minutes of being a mother, you know that that is complete nonsense because the world is not just and no baby is simply happy. I mean, it's, you know, babies cry something like 80% of the time. I mean, it's a difficult, it can be wonderfully pleasurable, but it's a very difficult path you're taking a new human subject on or ushering them onto. Um, but women are expected to do that and it's a lie and women know that. Women know that it's a lie. Forgive these generalizations, but I think to be a mother is to know that that is rubbish and then they are punished for that knowledge is how I see it. 
because maternity brings you up against what Hannah Arendt described as the mess of domestic life, which has to be cleaned by women and slaves so that men can go to the city square and be political citizens. So maternity brings you up against the mess of domestic life, 50 billion times expanded from what it was before you had a baby. Um, and it brings you up against the fragility of life because your task as a mother is to keep your baby alive. And it brings you up against inequality because you go out with your buggy and there are other ones that are either infinitely superior or less and the comfort of the baby depends on the amount of money you've got to make that baby comfortable. So women know the lie of these assumptions that they're meant to be reinforcing on behalf of the whole family. And that's why I think so many men hate mothers and pregnant women. Mm. And the statistic that comes home to roost most strikingly is the 54,000 women who every year are sacked for being pregnant. How, how, on earth, how on earth is that meant to work, right? So they're all sacked for being pregnant. Now, what it seemed to me happened during COVID was that the protection against the fragility of life, we were all rendered defenseless mm -hmm. in one fell swoop, which is to say that mortality and dying and fragility and vulnerability was brought into the drawing rooms of everybody or drawing rooms or the slums, the huge inequalities came rising to the surface because if you were in a slum in India, you could hardly sanitize your hands or keep a social distance. I mean, it was a completely disgustingly unequal set of commands that were being ushered. So what happened during the pandemic is that women failed by definition to fulfill this phantasmatic role, which was to make the world safe and happy. And I think that's why the rate of femicide shot up mm. because men were stuck in the home with women who, not the, who they couldn't protect, but who couldn't protect them from their own dying. And, uh, you know, it was as if suddenly what the pandemic did, and Camus is brilliant on this, it brings to the surface of a society the putrefying sores of the inequalities which it endlessly attempts to re-repress silence or ignore so something becomes visible in a time of pandemic and you realize that you've been living something before which has been a bit of a delusion which is you know as freud says in one of his essays on war and our attitude towards death man and a wife sitting talking to each other and one says to the other when when one of us dies i'll move to paris <laughs> um so our attitude towards death, as Freud describes it, is one of denial. War makes it visible, but the pandemic brings it into your home uh, or tells you that the barrier you thought you have between your home and the world outside is completely fraudulent and unsustainable. So I feel I, it's so interesting. I met my new students for the first time this week, and I feel I'm talking to different people from pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I really feel the generation who've lived through the pandemic are going through something which means that, that they cannot escape from fear. It's not something, so I don't know how many people will agree with this, but you look at Gaza now, and I or you look at the assault on 
of October the 7th. And it's impossible not to feel it as a kind of acute, physical, almost visceral presence in your own life. Those distances are really collapsing. I think it's partly because of the extent, the genocidal extent of what Israel is doing. But it's also because it was kids at a rave party, right, in Israel who were massacred and raped. And and therefore, it's as if no, nowhere is safe. In fact, a lot of people in Israel and outside are saying what October the 7th did was destroy the illusion that the Jewish people will be only safe in a state of their own people as a form of national self-determination would make them safe. That's why what Israel's doing, never mind the horror, the total unacceptability of the whole policy, it's what, they, what they're doing is insane because they're not going to make Israelis safer. I mean, that's the last thing they're doing by doing this. And the idea they can simply wipe out Hamas and then they will have won the war and what Hamas did will never happen again is by any standards of logic completely unrealistic. So it's utterly self-defeating. And it's as if, well, Adam Schatz wrote about this very brilliantly in the London Review of Books. It's a rhetoric of revenge. It's a kind of enraged attempt to enact a form of militant, violent security against the Palestinian people, which will surely not work. If you meet atrocity with atrocity, what you get is more atrocity. It's absolutely doomed to fail. So I feel that for a number of reasons, the war in Ukraine would be another one. And I would say the war in Gaza, definitely, and the pandemic, a certain kind of innocence of being, where you don't watch bodies being burning anonymously on the streets of India. You don't, you know, that world is gone. And I feel it's gone forever. Now, what's interesting is that we are, you know, on October, February, somebody said on February the 23rd, 2022, the pandemic was over. <laughs> End of, right? We know that the Conservative government has destroyed a lot of the equipment, the evidence, and the paraphernalia, which will be necessary for the next pandemic. It's destroyed it. It's shut down the labs. It's made us as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, to the next strike <coughs> than this one. And it is a kind of, it's a kind of denialism. It's kind of, let's all go back to thinking everything's fine now. Well, it's not fine. One, because the pandemic can and will return. But secondly, because it wasn't fine before. And it, this may be going a bit too far, but the mother is meant to deal with everything I've just described mm. and sort of sort it for us. It's a completely impossible demand. It's it's crazy making, but that's what mothers are meant to do. And, you know, how can you do that given the way the world is? Not to speak of climate catastrophe, which we haven't touched on, um, which raises the question of violence in the future, the, the consequences of violence in the present on the possibility or not of a future. And seems to reinforce, right, you know, climate catastrophe, sure, is, a, a, you know, the, the, the promise of something getting worse in the future. So that is to do with the destruction of the possibility of life, the, the possibility of infancy, of, of innocence. To go back to Gaza, you know, we are being 
inundated with images of, of dead children and babies and babies in incubators in hospitals. And we know about the C-sections that are happening without anesthesia. You know, the the destruction of new life, the potential of new life is happening in Gaza as it's happening and has happened and continues to happen elsewhere, mm. not in exactly the same ways, but you know, more generally in violence. And whilst all this is happening, there's this doubling down on this right wing obsession with the birth rate and with, you know, the 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 fantasy of you know, the right kind of women having the right kind of babies and that will produce this, you know, return to a safety that was never really there. But the the fantasy of that safety is placed inside the reproductive body, the body of the mother, as that exact ideology is just mm. decimating mm -hmm. everything else. Well, what when you were speaking then, it, it brought to mind Hannah Arendt's a wonderful discussion of natality and how she says every birth is a new beginning. Every birth opens the door to something that could be transformative. And that's where your utopianism, your eventual will to social struggle, to make a better world comes from. So I wouldn't want to knock that for a second because she also says, and this relates to your point about what babies, whose babies, what kind of babies, she also says this is why totalitarian regimes abhor every new birth and feel that the birth rate is something they have to control eugenically because every birth risks the possibility of an unheard voice. So it's like it's essentially democratizing, for about five minutes, by the way, but it's essentially democratizing um, in the sense that it's unpredictable. And that I would agree with. You know, so at the same time as I'm saying within five minutes, you know, the world isn't just and, you know, it's not fair and, you know, it's dangerous and, you know, it's unequal and all of that. You know that very, very quickly. Nonetheless, there's something there which hopefully you know you can't control and you cannot uh, get the better of or the worse of or whatever it is you want to do. And I have an adopted daughter um, and I think there's something rather wondrous about adoption because you know you don't own that baby you know it has another history that precedes you and therefore it's like you're a, a caretaker a caretaker a taker of care but you're not and maybe a guardian you're not a custodian you're definitely not an owner um so there's something that escapes in all of this which i think is grounds for optimism and just reminds me of that Winnicott that I think you quote in The Plague but you've definitely quoted in the mother's book I think um, that's very central to another Fitzcarraldo book The Long Form by Kate Briggs which I don't know if you've read but it's quite brilliant on mothering as care work basically um, you know show me a baby and I'll show you everyone else around the baby a baby on its own does not exist. That's is that what Winnicott the says yeah. only is such a thing as a mother and a baby. But what's amazing about Winnicott, he does say the function of the mother is to disillusion the baby very soon and to mediate the gap between the mother and the baby's body. That ha There has to be a severance, otherwise you'll have a crazy baby. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is very, very difficult to know how differentiation takes place. And I remember a wonderful article I wrote, which I'll just mention, by Lucie Rigaré, called Communication Specula uh, Linguistique et Speculaire, 
It's from the 70s. It's one of the first things I read by her, the French philosopher, Lucie Rigaré, where she says the Oedipus complex is basically the structure of pronouns. When a baby is born, it is I, and the mother, whoever is in that position, is the you. And those are unbudgeable positions. I is I, you is you. The only way that is going to move out of that crushing dialectic is if the mother becomes I for another you. Mm. And then the baby becomes he, she, or it. It's fall, it's thrown out of the circuit of linguistic exchange and has to witness the mother turning towards another. It can be the father, it can be anybody, it doesn't matter. That's why babies, when you're chatting to your friend, will grab you by the chin and push your face round so that you're paying attention to the baby <laughs> and not to the friend. This starts incredibly young because they are at the center. So she's saying Oedipus is a pronominal function. Oedipus is the moment where the third term intervenes. So the IU, the imaginary IU relationship breaks and language starts to circulate. And you realize that the I is a shifter. The I is the pronoun through which we all identify ourselves. It's the most unstable unit in the language because I simply means I who am speaking now and anybody can appropriate like like that child's game, I'm the dirty rascal, get, I'm the king of the castle, get down you dirty rascal, right? Which is my turn now, it's my turn. So basically this wonderful article by Eric Garret was about the strangeness of that process that you've got to usher your child into a world of threes. If it stays in the world of twos, there's going to be a problem. Now I know I'm starting to sound like Lacan from imaginary to symbolic, but you have to remember it is not. He's often misrepresented as a smooth transition. You leave the IU, you enter the he, she, it, IU world, which is much more fluent and flexible, and that is the symbolic system. But it's very important for Lacan that the symbolic system is slightly fraudulent, um, and he says somewhere meaning indicates the direction in which it fails, which is to say that these are not fixed positions. There's always a turbulence inside the circulation of the pronouns, inside the Oedipus complex, inside all of these structures, there's something else going on. And that's on what we pin our hopes because the system is not watertight.